Welcome back to another episode of Diabetics Doing Things. We're telling the amazing stories of people with diabetes from all over the world. It is National Diabetes Awareness Month 2023, which means that it's your fourth endom on the DDT team. Fourth? Wow. 2020, 2021, 22. Yeah. And it sounds like some kind of terrible apocalyptic event, but it's just... That's like... That's that's end doom. Every every year I make the same joke where I'm just like, diabetes awareness, I was already aware, but this year it's not funny. (laughs) I don't know. I think it's it's a fair point. I kind of put that in my little threads thing that I posted um, about, and I sent it out in the email as well. This man wants to be heard. Um, because, yeah, most people, you know, all the, all the data that we always talk about say that, like, one in three people have diabetes. Most everyone has heard of it. And at the same time, like, awareness of diabetes is so complicated. And I think that's actually a really good jumping off point because we have our our Women's Health Series this month. And we're talking about, like, a lot of different things that go into living with diabetes as a woman that men do not focus on or have to focus on or often even know about. So I think that's something like diabetes awareness has a lot of different levels. You learn about diabetes or your auntie has diabetes or your dog has diabetes or whatever. Then you get diabetes. You learn about what it's like for you. And if you're a man, you learn about like all of the carb counting and exercise and insulin sensitivity. And then there's this entire other side of the coin for women that and unless you're involved in the diabetes community or talking to other friends with diabetes, you would never know about. I think that's something really cool that we do at Diabetics Doing Things is that we like for the last couple of endoms, I want to say, well, it wasn't during National Diabetes Awareness Month, but it was in December. But one of the things that we've always done since I've been here is like we've kind of focused on one issue and just kind of like honed in on it. So last year was mental health and we got to talk to Mary Mosier and that was so much fun. And also we got to do an episode in Spanish which made me feel you know, like I was really representing a community of people and trying to get them information that sometimes isn't accessible to them. And I feel like we're doing kind of the same thing this year because I, as a woman living with diabetes, have personally experienced the limitations of what information is available to us. And it just really isn't that much. And in going to these conferences and just even noticing small things that I don't think other people are aware of, but it's those rooms being smaller and those conversations not really being at the forefront of you know, what's being highlighted at these events, even though we know that half of the population of diabetes are women. So when we're completely keeping an entire population of people out of the conversation by not tailoring it to them, it seems like there's a lack of information specifically in that field. And so I think we're doing what we can to expand it and to get some subject matter experts here on the show and use our platform to spread not just awareness about diabetes, but awareness about things within diabetes and women's health and hormones and pregnancy and postnatal care and infant loss that maybe you would not have thought about otherwise. Well said. I think it's really weird. It's like a, it's an interesting juxtaposition because there are so many women researchers and women scientists and endocrinologists and CDCESs. In fact, like the bulk of CDCESs are overwhelmingly women. And at the same time, when you look at the research, it's inherently skewed male and inherently skewed white and, and white adjacent. Mm -hmm. It kind of brings up, and I'm going to talk about this a little bit more as well, because I'm on the board of JDRF Dallas, I got invited to a conversation with Aaron Kowalski. He came to town, the CEO of JDRF, also lives with type one. 
And he talked about some of the limitations of JDRF in the past where initially they went really deep into really narrow communities. And I think that's actually what we're talking about here as well, is that there is a lot of diabetes research, but it doesn't expand into black community, Spanish community, South Asian community, Africans, like, you know, a, a European, you know, presenting people who are non-white. Like, and I think the, you know, it's really interesting that now we're sort of uncovering this wide net and there's all these opportunities to do what's already been studied in small communities or one community and expand it to these others. Like you said, we did one Spanish episode last year. We probably should do another one soon. I know we uh, were having a conversation about uh, a couple of Spanish uh, diabetes influencer accounts that I think would be uh, good to feature. And I think, again, uh, it's still early. That was the other thing that I have really been focused on a lot this year in diabetes in general is that we're pretty close to you know what we would call a functional cure in a lot of ways in the next 10 years. There's already people walking around who are on immunosuppressants who have had their beta cell encapsulated beta cells, you know, re-injected. We're having these conversations about delaying the onset of type one in, in many cases. We've talked about that a lot on this podcast. It's probably going to continue to be a theme just because those are the big overarching themes right now. But it's still early. A hundred years ago, we'd be dead. So, you know, every achievement, every, there's like, you know, what the first person with diabetes to do X or the first, you know, experiment with someone with diabetes to do XYZ or some new technology allows for people to get better outcomes with less input and like less management. All of those things are, I don't know, they're, they're new. And I think the, because they're narrow and because there's not as many fields studied, and it seems like a really obvious thing, like you said, it's half the population. But mm -hmm. we kind of have to overcome our own biases and like be that change that you want to see, right? Like there's plenty of diabetes podcasts. We've had pr plenty of women on this podcast. We haven't really dug into the specifics of management for women compared to men. I also think that even with this series, even though we're dedicating four hours to it, there's a lot of stuff we're going to miss. There's a lot of things that are not going to make it to these episodes. Before recording this, Rob was like kind of coaching me on hosting because I don't host the episodes, right? I produce them. It's my job to just kind of like sit back and figure out different parts. But navigating through the conversations are has proven to be a little bit difficult for me because I think I'm a little bit overly ambitious and I'll write out like 15 questions and Rob's like, Eritrea, it will be lucky if we get like five really great ones, you know, so that you can leave some room to really, you know, expand the conversation. And so I'm learning as well. But what it feels like is that we're going to have to dive into this topic again multiple times because there's always new information. And even this specific like group of women, for the most part, they're all Eurocentric. Like they're all white women, except for one of them. So it's like, ultimately, there are going to be marks that we miss here and that we're going to have to go back and delve further into because there are just different things that impact different communities. Um, but for a start, I'm really proud of us and I'm excited for what this endeavor is going to look like and for you guys to hear the content. I have learned a lot, which I think is really fun. You know, I think I, I love, that's one of the reasons why I started the podcast is to learn from other people. And I can definitely say I've like super leveled up. So I think one of the things that, you know, just as I was thinking about my, you know, where we are today and pause real quick, cause your chain is hitting your mic. My chain. Ooh, sorry. I'm a rich person. <laughs> 
I wear every chain. What is it? What is it? Like, I Even wear when you're in the house. house. Who who was that? Was that was that Drizzy Drake? Yeah, that's your, so. your that's guy. Yeah. Okay, get out. He's on. <laughs> Rob is still on his birthday behavior. Everybody, so please. Worst worst behaviors. <laughs> no. Okay. Anyway, so as I was thinking about you know what I think about diabetes awareness this year, I thought of it in three categories: where we've come from, where we are, and where we're going. And that's kind of what we're talking about. Where we come from is all like new. We had in one of our interviews that you guys have already heard with Dawn, she had four children while she was on rely on style insulin, like old NPH insulin, you know, an R, like, you know, really old stuff. And her kids are fine and they're great. And now, you know, we have how many different automated insulin delivery systems and CGMs and some people aren't even pricking their finger anymore. Like they've never pricked their finger. They live with diabetes. And that's wild to me. Never? Come on. They have to calibrate their CGMs. I don't believe that. Sorry. Sure, it's probably cap. I'm, I'm it's probably cap. It's probably cap. cap. <laughs> but still, like, you know, the idea that they'll never know what it's like to prick their finger 10 times a day. That's just that's fair. That's just you and I's like grand, grandparent story. Like, okay, grandpa, sit down. And and I think that's really cool to celebrate. Like, and we don't do that enough. Like that's been something I've been trying to do more consciously recently is celebrate the days that I'm not annoyed by diabetes and celebrate the, you know, the time that, you know, that I have that I'm able to just to be me and not really think about what's going on in the background. So that's where we've been. Where we are though, is that these treatments are coming. These, you know, functional cures, this technology is being released. Not everybody has access to it. And, you know, until we come up with a system where that's going to be more possible, it's hard to get excited about those things for the same reasons that you were talking about, about talking about women is that we've seen the data about pump and CGM usage in the black community and how A1C outcomes are higher, probably because the technology is not even prescribed or introduced to these people. Misdiagnoses and inherent biases there. It's a tough time. Also, diabetes really is tough. You have to like do a whole lot. And like you said, even people like us who have, you know, you've done over a hundred episodes with, with us now, uh, you know, I've done probably 400 podcast episodes between this podcast and being on other ones over the years. And I'm still just scratching the surface on diabetes knowledge. You know, like you said, we were doing hour long conversations with these people and there's still things that we can't even get into that conversation. That's how complicated diabetes is. But where we're going is exciting. And it's okay to say that even though there are barriers to entry there, it is not an equitable circumstance. You can see a pathway that in the next 20 years or so, when someone's diagnosed with diabetes, if they're diagnosed with diabetes, their treatment is going to be a whole lot different than it was for us 20 years ago. Uh, and I think that's something that is worth celebrating and having perspective on because those people who were diagnosed 50 years ago who had to boil their vials and use pig insulin and pee on a, on a test strip or a keto strip, they're living long lives. They have grandkids. They lived, had great careers. They did what they wanted to do. And I think that's really important for us to just keep centered on the conversation, especially when times get hard, because it's still early. We're the first people to do that. You know, like the first people to live to 100 with diabetes are like just now dying, <laughs> which is nuts. Isn't that insane? I, something that you said in your threads and that you're kind of talking about now, but I want to 
dive into a little bit or peel back is that having diabetes forces you as a person to have a growth mindset. And I think that's so interesting because I've been told before that as a person with diabetes that I have a victim mindset. And I think that that's kind of crazy that people really do think that as like a whole for like the diabetes community that we're all just like a bunch of people who's like, oh, I'm low. Oh, I'm this. Oh, I'm that. But they don't see how much of it is actually growth mindset and not like this is just what's happening to me. So anyway, I just want us to peel back that growth mindset part a little bit more. Yeah, I think it it all has to do with perception. Because from the outside, you could say, oh, all these people, like, let's just use me as an example. There's nothing wrong with me. Like, if you looked at me, you know, there's no limitation, right? You would say, like, able-bodied people or somebody with... I would say there's plenty wrong with you outside of diabetes. (laughs) Sure, sure, sure. But, like, you know, you you would say, like, it's hard for me... Like as an outsider, it would be hard to, to look at me and say, wow, Rob has it really hard. That's At the same time, my mindset is very much like, okay, well, this is happening to me. Like, how can I work through it? And that's the, that's the, the difficulty with diabetes. I think the force, forcing yourself to adopt a growth mindset often is where a lot of that struggle lies because it's not a natural thing. And it happens for a lot of people when they're really young. So if you're 12 years old and someone is telling you, well, even though you don't feel your best, you still have to go to basketball practice. You still have to go to school. You still have to do that. You adopting that growth mindset as a young person is not obvious to people on the outside. And they may see you pulling yourself out of school for tests or pulling yourself out of sports and say, oh, that person is a victim. When in reality, you're just trying to prioritize your own health. I felt like that last part was the part that I needed because I felt like giving myself extra time to lie down because I was low in the morning or sleeping in on some days because I had a hard blood sugar the day before. Like I feel like a person who doesn't understand what it's like to have diabetes doesn't realize you're not sleeping in because you're lazy. You're sleeping in because your body has to work twice as hard as a normal person's body. And so you're just a little bit more tired than the average person. So I don't think that it's a victim mindset to be gentle with yourself, but I think that absolutely you, you hit the nail on the head when you said perception is the entire thing. And if anything, all I have to say to the person who told me I have a victim mindset is you're just jealous. You're just jealous that you don't get to be as easy with yourself as I get to be with myself sometimes. And you kind of wish that you had that, that you don't. So and goodbye, I think, loser. I think, yeah, I mean, A, for sure, don't, don't let the haters in. Uh, they'll get theirs. Uh, but <laughs> the... I think you have to give yourself credit too. Look at all I had to overcome to get to school today. Look at all I had to overcome to get to work. And other people didn't have to do that. And if you can give yourself credit for that and kind of wear it as a badge of honor, even if you only do it to yourself, I always used to do that when I would go to 24 and like play basketball in high school because I like to talk shit and people. And so when people talk shit to me, I give it back to them. And in the back of my mind, when I'm really cooking somebody, I'm thinking about all the things that I'm balancing in my head that allowed me to show up and be who I am in that moment. And that gives me more energy, more juice, because they didn't have to do that. Or maybe they did with their own thing. But like, that's for me. And like, I think that's where 
you can kind of play some of those mind games for yourself. But it is all about perception. Most people have no idea what you're going through. There's all all the posts this month during Endom. I'm sure will be out there about. You know, it's an invisible disease, and it's hard to explain what's going on behind the scenes. And you know, we're still early. Like I said, I was the first person to with diabetes to play for the Washington General. So I'm going to talk a little bit of shit about that. And you know, like when you when you're pushing yourself to these new things. We published, um, we've published 48 podcasts already this year, 111 reels. So like, those are things that like you should wear as a badge of honor. You make it to school on time every day, all through the year. You make it to through a sports practice. You make it to a workout. You know, you're a 75 hard girly. Like may you make it through some sort of, you know, challenge that you set for yourself. You overcame 10 times more things than a regular person who was going through that. And they celebrate it. So be sure to like give yourself a pat on the back from a time to time. Beautiful pep talk from Grandpa Rob. <laughs> Sit down, Grandpa. Okay, so World Diabetes Day is November fourteenth. The Ooh. the so the this is I'm gonna I'm gonna get on my pedestal a little bit here. Man. Don't let, don't let me cook. I really don't like that November is National Diabetes Awareness Month, and let me tell you why. Because the secret, the not so secret secret is that Thanksgiving owns November Fair. In, the, in the U.S. So after World Diabetes Day, November is not about diabetes anymore. Everybody loses steam on their challenges. Nobody's posting all the time anymore. All the blue stuff goes away because it's everybody's hungry. And we're you know celebrating the, the colonism, colonial mindset of America. Anyway, the so we only get half the month. Are you doing anything for World Diabetes Day? Because you work at you work at Diatribe. Are you guys doing anything special? Yeah, but it's a surprise. I'm not going to tell you people all of our secrets, but definitely tune in. We have a few things happening. I would say something that's not a surprise is that I'm hosting an Instagram Live with our Diatribe Stigma Manager on November 14th. I believe it's like at a certain time because he will be broadcasting from Melbourne, Melbourne, Australia. Melbourne? I'll be here. Melbourne, Australia, where they have kangaroos. This is a terrible Australian accent. Please, nobody come for me. <laughs> you have a very African-Australian accent. You know what? Remind me of this moment during Black History Month, because I'm going to come back to it, and my people will be calling you. Anyways, so we're doing that for Diatribe. We're also hosting a panel on November 15th for Musings, where we'll be talking about lipids, metabolic triglycerides, and kidney health. We're very excited to announce that Type 1 Dan, our good friend Daniel Newman from the pod, will be on the panel. So those are our two big events. We also have a Time and Range Coalition video dropping. So a lot happening at Diatribe for National Diabetes Awareness Month. I'll be very honest. I was planning on like releasing a 30-day series of like videos every single day. But with the amount of content that just comes out during end it did not seem to me like it would actually be watched and be resourceful. So I'm going to try to schedule that at a later time, whether it's December for like a vlogmas thing or January, just because there's so much content happening in November. And for me, the content happens to give me diabetes distress. So, yeah. I saw a post about that that was like, it's okay to, you know, opt out of some of the content because it can be a lot. There's a lot of campaigns. The brands do them. That's going to be what I'm doing on World Diabetes Day is I'll be uh, at Medtronic headquarters with some of the other Medtronic champions. Which, uh, which headquarters? Los Angeles. 
Oh, big man going to L.A. Okay, big techs. Why uh, California? I'll I'll wear my big tech shirt. Howdy, folks. Uh, yeah, so that'll be fun. Um, and you know, you guys will see all that. But yeah, I, there there is a lot of noise sometimes. I think it's good. Like, uh, we live in diabetes every day, and this is what we focused on back in 2021. If you remember, we made all those graphics about like the important things that we needed to know, important statistics about diabetes that we felt were just important to revisit. Maybe we'll do some more just resurrecting of those because they're still important. We should, especially the sleep one. That one was, that one hits. People love that one because I think we all feel it. You know, you just lose a lot of sleep with diabetes. That's one of the things I'd made a video about my 780G recently, like sleep because of the lack of alerts in the middle of the night. I've been sleeping through the night a whole lot more, which has just been really nice. Yeah, not an issue. That sounds that sounds lovely. I almost thought that the pump was broken like the first three or four times like I woke up with it because it wasn't like making noise. Is at the me. battery dead? Yeah, it was so great. I was like, wow, I'm in range and it hasn't been yelling at me. Wow. Look at God. So wow. that's something to me, like if we get into our diabetes a little bit, I have my first endo appointment today. We're recording on Friday. It's on Monday. Uh, my first endo appointment since I've been on 780. You okay there? Yeah, I have been, I had a Coke Zero. When I you guys don't know this, but I mute myself all the time and I like burp. So that's just the that's just TMI for the pod, but that's just how it goes. I wish you guys could see my face right now. Like ew, no. Rob, ew. This is a video pod, so they will see your face. Uh I don't know if you know that. Uh but <laughs> the anyway, yeah, I uh I'm gonna have my first A one C since I've been on med uh mini med seven eighty G and I've decided that I don't really care about the outcome because I think it's I think it's going to be good. My time in range is great. I'm happy with the results. But I've been doing so little thinking about my diabetes and so little like obsessing over the number that even if my A1C was higher than it was last time or it was like in a range that was you know, I needed to take more control over, I have capacity to do that. So I could always just focus more on it. And I, even though I think I, I'm still leaving open the idea that, I, that my A1C is in like the, a range that I only have hit a couple of times in my life in terms of like control. But to me, that's like a huge win. If my A1C is in a range that I would previously have really had to work hard for. And right now I'm just kind of letting the, the pump do its thing. So I'm sure I'll update you guys on that next time or in a subsequent episode. I think it's important to do what you can and also outsource what you can. So if you can let your pump do its thing, let's do its thing, you know? Yeah, you got to let it do its thing. So period. Uh, what's up with your diabetes? You were traveling. We talked about your travel schedule, which definitely changed a little bit, but you were at ESD, you were overseas, you were in Hamburg, you were doing your thing, you were in Amsterdam. You were traveling all around. What's up with your diabetes? I guess let's start at EASD. First of all, I had such a good time meeting everybody and seeing all of our, a lot of people that I, first of all, shout out to Santiago, who's like my, one of my favorite people to see at these conferences, the diabetic survivor on Instagram. Love working with him. Love talking to him. He was all the way in Scotland. So it's always nice to see him. And also Jean, also Donnie, just like lots of people from honestly DDoc. I wish I had better things to say about DDoc right now. I just don't. That's a personal thing. 
for you guys listening to the pod, maybe that's tea that I'll tell you guys about one day, but not today. Rob's eyes got so big. Is he was this like, for is the close tell him? Is this for the close friends? Maybe. Maybe we'll have to do like a Patreon episode or something where you guys can pay for me to tell you guys this hot tea, but not today. Lots of good times with the D-Dog folks, and I really do appreciate the relationships that I've built with people from there. EAC was great, as usual. A wonderful time to network and see people. And also just be a part of really incredible panels and conversations that I wouldn't get to witness otherwise. So always feeling very grateful to be in those rooms. As far as diabetes goes, I did have a thing happen at EASD. So my pump stopped working on day one of EASD. And I was just like, okay, it's probably just a bad like sensor because I wear a Dexcom G6. Um, And so I removed my sensor, put on a new one. Nope, didn't work. And so obviously I'm on well, I'm on the control IQ system with tandem, which works with the Dexcom. So if your Dexcom's not getting readings, then your AID control IQ system is not going to be able to work automatically, right? Because it doesn't know what your blood sugar is. So I had to like input my blood sugars. Thank God I actually had a glucometer that my boyfriend gave me. He was like, Hey, I have an extra glucometer. I've to like to test his blood sugar. I don't know why. But he like gave me an extra one just to have. And I was like, okay. I mean, we love that, but some some men love this whole biohacking engineering thing. He's a silly guy. Anyways, she gave me extra meter, came with lots of test strips, so I had like all that with me. So I was just like testing on my fingers, and then finally, the last day I was at EASD, I gave up, and I was like, okay, I gotta figure this out. So I got really lucky, and a lovely friend from Diabetes Center Burn, her name's Svea S V E A. She Svea. gave me. I love Svea. her. Shout out Svea. She gave me a Dexcom sensor. And then good friend of myself in the pod. At this point, she's ever been on the pod by talk about all the time. Julie Heverly gave me a transmitter. So two diabetes people helped me out so that I could get a new site in, a new sensor in. And then I called Dexcom and let them know what was happening. They replaced my sensors and the transmitter here in Dallas. I had to ask my friends to send me more sensors in Germany. So lucky for me, they were able to send it to my family's house in Germany. So I just got it from them like a couple of days later. But otherwise, I would have been completely out of luck because I don't know if you guys know this, but Dexcom does not ship internationally. So even if you have, if you're an American patient who has an an issue in another country, they'll ship you stuff to your original patient address. They will not ship you stuff to another place in Europe. They'll ship you stuff in America. So like if you're in San Diego or something, they'll ship it there, but not to Europe. So Well, you know why that is? Because Dexcom US and all the US branches of all these companies so it's not just dexcom it's all of them they don't have regulatory approval mm. to distribute product in europe so when lauren cox was on the pod she talked about how she brings like all of her supplies for the season before she leaves and she gets a insurance hardship sometimes or, or whatever to order all those supplies in bulk because they can't deliver them overseas that is a pretty common experience for people who are traveling abroad or like living abroad for the first time because you have to become a patient of the you know you would have to in your case you're a patient right now of dexcom us you would have to have a prescription for dexcom in whatever country that you're in so even if you're outside the eu and you had an eu prescription they may not be able to to mail it across those borders so just inter interesting regulatory approval challenges when you're going from country to country continent to continent my friends some of us are a little more global than others no i'm just kidding i'm not no shade to anybody but yeah no i didn't know that and so i got lucky and i will say that shipping myself 
for Dexcoms and a transmitter cost $175 and it wasn't even overnight. So it can be pricey. You know, these are costs that are associated with having diabetes and travel that we don't really think about until we have to pay for it. So I would say that was like my first challenge. And then I was supposed to go to Germany right after like another city where my family lives to see family, but my family was actually out of town for like personal reasons that you know, I don't want to go into right now. Anyways, they weren't going to be there. And so I decided to go to Amsterdam instead. And then that weekend was October 7th. So October 7th, I believe it was on a Friday or a Saturday. And things kind of started happening in the Middle East. And so I was supposed to, yeah, October 7th was a Saturday. So it's a Saturday I woke up in Amsterdam. Things started happening in the Middle East. There was a protest in Amsterdam that day. So I was just like, okay, I don't really know what's going on. And then I got an email from work that was like, hey, Eritrea, don't go to Egypt. Because my plan for my trip was to go Germany, EASD, family, Amsterdam, Athens, Cairo, New York, home. And all of you guys are like, Eritrea, you're crazy. But I do stuff like this every October. Like, that's just my regular. Digital nomad. Yeah, I mean, I am very lucky to no longer be married or have children. So I can basically do whatever I want, right? very lucky to have support at home to watch my dog and everything else. But the point is, I that would no longer seem like a feasible trip because Cairo didn't seem like a safe destination anymore. Not because Cairo is under siege, but because Egypt borders Palestine and it just could turn into the airports being closed or me not having the supplies I need, whatever could arise. And it just wasn't something I wanted to put myself in. And also work seemed very concerned about my safety and about my personal mental health and well-being because Rob knows I was kind of spiraling. Well, I I, I think with good reason and we can shift that to that discussion now. Like we had two episodes in October with Noor and with Mohammed who are friends of the pod and are Palestinian and are good friends of yours. Good close personal, I would say like close like family friends almost. Right. So when your close personal friends and family and people are literally under attack, like, and you're having to see that on the news and in social media all day, every day, still are at the time of this recording, of course that affects you. Uh, and, and in ways that it doesn't affect the rest of us, even those of us who are aware and like tuned into what is happening, it doesn't affect us the same way because we are American. We're Western. It's not, it's not happening to us. We're like literally doing it on one hand, but the, like, it's not as personal because we don't know the names and and faces of those people who, who we love, who are going through it. So of course it affects you. And I think, you know, just to reinforce like their, you know, works challenges and like fears and like wanting to make sure you're safe. Like there are American citizens who were in Gaza at the time of the attack that are still stuck there uh, yeah. and, you know, are not, you know, going to be out there being treated like, just like everybody else. And, you know, that, I mean, that was so part of being in Germany, right? So like one of the days that I was there, we realized that part, like we had family members that were there because we were watching an Instagram video, right? So it's like my cousins at home were crying about the little girl and little boy who live upstairs in their building because they're in Gaza. Like they went home for October break and we haven't heard from them, right? And then we see them on like some refugee video. And it's like that happening in real time, watching people shriek in front of you. It was just a lot of stress. 
I mean, when I was in Germany, my grandma had a stroke. Like it was just a lot happening within my unit, like my family unit, and then also happening within my friends that I the episode that we posted from Palestine, like I recorded that when I was in Germany and I've gone back and re-listened to that episode and I sound insane. Like I listen to it and it's like I am crying so hard. And it's because I was so immersed and still am in this pain that is happening a lot. And I a lot of people don't know this about me, but I was named Eritrea because my dad was part of the Eritrean Liberation Forces. And for me, it's really hard to wrap my mind around the fact that if I was abandoned in a place like Eritrea and needed my insulin, people would consider me part of the collateral damage that is bombing of the entire of an entire nation, ethnic cleansing of the people. So it's really hard for me to sit here and to listen to white people tell me all day that I matter while I am watching them discard and disregard people who look like me in Gaza. And it's constant. I think early on in your career on this podcast, we talked a lot about intersectionality. And I think, you know, you talked about being an intersectional ad, an intersectional advocate for people. And so when we look at things like Black Lives Matter and we look at things like stopping ethnic cleansing overseas, those are the same. And you can't really do one without the other. You can't claim to be for one without the other. And... You know, unfortunately, I think what what we're seeing right now, there is some learning, but at what cost? You know, it's like we we get to we get to be over here in the West and learn. Oh, I'm learning so much about this. But people in Palestine are dying. You know, so that that is again that privilege of of being able to watch this unfold versus having to live it. And again, like we've we've made very clear that. Aligning with the oppressed and and advocating for people in Palestine to stop being murdered in mass by weapons of mass destruction, which is another trigger word in in the Middle Eastern war history, uh, is not anti-Semitism, and it also does not absolve people who are using this as a chance to be anti-Semitic. That's that is a terrible thing, and I That's think disgusting. Any kind of xenophobia or type of rhetoric against a group of people based off of their race, religion, gender is absolutely disgusting and has nothing to do with Islam or Judaism. There's a really great Lupe Fiasco quote from an old song in the Lasers album. This is like back and back. I'm, de- I'm aging myself, but it's like murdering is not Islam. So you are not observant. And then the next line literally says, Israel, don't take my side because look how far you push them. So it's this horrible double-sided coin. And I would hate for anyone to think that us criticizing the state of Israel for their continued genocide and ethnic cleansing of an entire people and creation of concentration camp to be anti-Semitic. Because to me, that seems like a weapon of the West to keep us silent. You are afraid of being told that you are anti-Semitic, so you'll stay quiet. I am not being, I'm not afraid of that. I'm no longer afraid of that. Like, if you want to call me anti-Semitic, I'm happy to be held to task. I'm happy to be held accountable, but not when I'm speaking out towards a genocide, especially one that's been going on for so long. Like, ah, sorry, sorry. No, no, I think what's interesting too is looking at the the charts of like age groups in the U.S. specifically on their observation and alignment with 
what's going on in the Middle East, there's a clear divide of like right at the middle of Gen X and younger millennials, Gen Z, et cetera, are almost overwhelmingly on the side of a ceasefire in Palestine. But as you go older, and again, talking about that thing that's been going on for a long time, what's going been going on that entire time in this country as well is the propaganda machine. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think these people have heard the same things for so long, so long, so long that they can't accept that it may not be true. And that challenges their narrative of what they think has been so core to them over the years. It's also biblical, right? So like even in my family, like I will, I'm a very strong opinion person. The way that I am on this pod is only like it's me. It's the diluted version of me, to be completely honest. And so like in conversation with my family and I was telling my mom how I felt about it. She was like, oh, Eritrea, you need to be careful because the Israelites are like the promised people of God. Like they're protected in the Bible. So there's like all this other religious standing in how you speak about a certain people. And I would like to say to that, and I told my mom, a book does not give you like freedom of criticism. It doesn't mean I don't get to criticize your actions just because of a passage in the Quran, in the Bible, in the Torah. It doesn't matter what book. If you're doing something that is actually crazy, which to me, killing children is insane, I'm going to have questions. Where are we riding? Why are we dying? Why is this happening? Um, And I think that that's fair. Yeah. He said, yes, agree. Hard agree there. No, I mean, the conversation around Palestine is not as nuanced as we, as the West has tried to make it seem. It really bothers me when people are like, I just don't know enough. I don't, I haven't done the research. Girl, you have watched every episode of The Bachelor, but you don't know enough about this. Like, it's very frustrating to me. So if you would like to fight me on the internet, please come find me. My at is Eritrea with four, three A's. I'm also on TikTok and you can have my email. It's on this podcast. So happy to talk to anybody who would like to talk to you more about this. But honestly, not here for the discourse that says we absolutely care about Palestinians. Where is the Spare Rose campaign, diabetic online community? Where are the nonprofits aligned together in a consensus to send insulin to people in Palestine? Where is the cry for a humanitarian quarter? Where? I'm sitting on this podcast and we have listeners we have, we have the followers we have. It's been a month. It's about to be a month and four days. The fact that people with diabetes are still alive and have insulin is actually mind-blowing. Think about that. How much insulin is in your refrigerator right now? Right now. Let's say that the alarms start signing in whatever neighborhood you're in. And whatever insulin you have in your fridge is what you've got to make it until humanitarian aid can come to your salvation. Don't talk to me about zombie apocalypses and running to each other's homes and what would we do. This is actually happening to people who look like us. This is actually happening to people like you. You just don't care because they're in Palestine. It's real cute to talk about when it's zombies, but when it's brown people, that's that's the one thing that can unite the left and the right in the U.S. is the hatred of brown people. I'm done talking now. I feel like I've yelled at everyone enough. Yeah, but I think, you know... I'll even go back to, so you started, you and a group of other people started the Diabetic Humanitarian Aid Coalition. Coalition. Mm-hmm. Um, and the ac- the only action that we here can take is to send letters to our representatives. And to, and we're starting this to gather supplies. So that is coming soon. So 
positive momentum from people like yourself. Uh, and so I sent her, I sent a letter to my representative calling for humanitarian aid and I got a response back and I sent a response back to that because the response I got was not what I asked for. And also did not once mention Palestine by name. There were six mentions of Hamas in the, in the email. And so again, back to that propaganda narrative of if we don't name these people, they don't exist. If we just say Hamas and we tell the media it's Hamas, then we can win hearts and minds via the media. And so I, you know, I responded and no, I of course haven't gotten a response back after that, but you know, it's like, Hey, you people are, you people, the people elected representatives of this country are put in position to make difficult decisions under duress for the good of the citizens. And as a taxpayer, I think there was a, I saw a video on TikTok. I don't have a way of verifying it, but effectively it was like every person in America pays $84 towards 89, $89 for, uh, supplying weapons and munitions to the military in Israel. So we are literally shareholders, stakeholders in these attacks. And yet seemingly all the protests, overwhelming support to ceasefire have been ignored and are continuing to be ignored. I think $13 billion allocated an additional 13 billion. And you know, no, and we're sending an additional 14 as of today. Yeah. That's, that was that's approved. what I mean. Yeah. The fact that 66% of, t of voters have agreed that we do not want to be a part of this war. This is not George Bush's America, ladies and gentlemen. This isn't even Biden's America, to be real. I don't know whose America it is, but what are we doing? Well, I think it's interesting, too. Like, President Obama, who it's not Obama's America anymore either, <laughs> but he wrote, like, a tweet, and I was reading, I'm like, you know, he was comparing it to 9-11, which early on in the... In the news Narrative? coverage, in the in the news coverage was it is the largest, you know, the start on October seventh, the Hamas attack was the largest attack on Israeli soil, and you know it was compared to nine eleven. It was it, population comparison or whatever the narrative was was that it was equal to nine eleven. But what I thought of is that there really wasn't any social media. There was no social media during nine eleven, and it, it did not excuse the the war crimes of the U.S. after the fact, but everybody was so galvanized that we were under attack mm -hmm. and Al-Qaeda was was evil. And, and certainly mm -hmm. they, they were, but it didn't excuse the dropping of bombs on civilians, the murder of civilians that happened countless times over there in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I think, you know, again, it just comes back to, like you said, very 2002, 2003 type of vibe, which is dangerous for people here in Dallas, people here in the U.S. who are Muslim or even just look Muslim. And it starts this very anti-Islamophobic rhetoric on top of actually, you know, people who have family and friends over there who are, you know, actively under attack. I think that criticism of resistance groups when you've never had to resist is absolutely buffoonery. And I say that with my whole chest. If you are a person who is white in America and have not experienced oppression, and I mean socioeconomic or prejudicial because of your religion, you have no right, actually literally zero right, I'm telling you right now, 
to criticize any type of resistance group, be that any. Because you've never had to protect your home from it being colonized, like from the bed that you sleep in. And I think that for me, that's what's so frustrating because we talk about Al-Qaeda. We talk about all of these things that happen in a post 9-11 world. We bombed the hell out of Afghanistan and we found Osama bin Laden in Pakistan. So it's like we were in there, right, looking for him. That was the guise of weapons of mass destruction and looking for him there. We We killed how many people? How many soldiers have come back with PTSD and been like, look at what you forced me to do? The data is there, right? We have got to stop doing this. At what point do we start learning from our mistakes? I am a big believer in the Holocaust. I've been to the National National Judaism Museums here in Dallas multiple times. I've met Eli Weasel in person. He wrote the book Night. I was lucky to meet him when I was in high school. I was really into the Holocaust because it was very interesting to me how someone got away with this, like really a full-on genocide of people while the entire world was just like, huh. And to me, when we said never again, of course, never again to murdering Jews in any capacity. Anti-Semitism is wrong. But I thought never again meant for all of us. I thought it meant for all of humanity because it really bothers me when I see crazy people like Amy Schumer Plus all this horrible Islamophobic stuff and she gets to keep her job. But me and other Palestinian people who speak up against Israel are like, are we going to get fired? There is a ridiculous amount of Islamophobia in this country. There always has been. It seems to be a unifier. It is creepy and it is weird. I don't know. Well, and I think that is where I, I come from, too, is like we all like to believe that if we were there, we was, you know, we the holocaust would have never happened and i think that's why it's so strange to me that you that people even jewish people can't see how similar it is history is repeating itself just to a different people group and it's like well it's okay it's happening to that people group i don't like them and that's really that's literally what it reading the narratives of these really far right extremism takes of yeah, it's okay that it's happening to these people. I don't like them. And that's just not, how is that not exactly what happened in Europe uh, at the start of World War II? And how does this not what happened in Ukraine last year? If we, or if to we get we- one Uyghur, clip, Or to Uyghur Muslims in China. Uh, or, it's currently still happening. Right. As of right now, Darfur, still happening right now. Congo, still Congo. happening right now. If there is one clip that comes out of this episode, I would like for it to be this. Diabetes Online Community. Where is the loudness that you had for the Ukraine? Where is the compassion that you had for European refugees? And why don't you have it for the people of Palestine? If someone could answer that question for me, I would be happy to sew my mouth shut for the rest of my life. I just want an answer from anybody. Thank you, please. This episode was produced by Eritrea Musa. <laughs> edited and published by Ashley Bright. It's National Diabetes Awareness Month. The world is different today, but it's also the same. And we have to center humanity. Those are people. Those are not numbers. The five pages of children who have not reached one year of age who are no longer living because they're being attacked is a real thing. I think at this time of recording, 
32,000 people have been wounded in Gaza. 9,061 Palestinians have died. And at this point, with still keeping in mind the people who died on the attacks of October 7th, because those people did not deserve to die either, when will this death toll be enough for the, for the world? When will you guys be satisfied with the spilling of innocent blood? Yeah, I think, you know, we got We probably end it there. We maybe need an outro of some kind. But I think the, the reality is like, what is powering this? It's hatred. It's greed. It's racism. It's blatant xenophobia. And also it is the pitting of two groups against one another, right? Because if we can distract you and anger you, then we can create more business, which is war. But that would be be asking the audience to join me in putting our all of our tinfoil hats on it's it's an easy thing to do man you you start to really dig into it and you start to like like what you, you feel like you're on a joe rogan episode or something so it's uh yeah okay well we will figure out a way to edit this you episode can also too. record your own outro and just be like i understand how air Trade feels blah 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 here's well some. but i don't though i i i, I can't i can't know and I think that's why I trust your spirit and your hurt and your heart because I can't know. You said it. I've never been oppressed. I've never been. I mean, but you're the child of a person. So I feel like for me, one of the most impactful things that I've seen, which is going to sound crazy because there's like so many st things that I've seen on the Internet, was like this video of this man. There's a woman and she and her mom were riding in the back of an Uber in Cairo. And uh, the Egyptian guy, he's like on the phone and he just suddenly gets a phone call that his dad died. His mom and his dad were in a house in Gaza and she like stepped out for a second. When she came back, the house had collapsed on his dad. His screams. I love my dad and I know you love yours and you don't have your dad anymore. I can't imagine not being with my dad and someone calling me and just telling me he's not here anymore and I couldn't help him and the world couldn't help him. So it's not so much my pain. I think that for all of us as humans, we can imagine pain, but watching these people really go through it and us just watching, like sharing a post and then the next post is like, even me, I'm culpable of this. I'll post something that's like horrible from Gaza. And then the next post will be like, happy birthday to my mom. Because it's like, I don't want to forget, it's also her birthday. And we're all just trying to exist in this duality of compassion and empathy for others while still giving yourself space to be alive, while still wanting to be alive, while looking for motivation to take care of your diabetes. Like, it's so complex. So I don't need us all to just, like, refer to the pain of the Palestinians, but so much more of, like, what if it really was you? Like, really, 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 what if it was you? And it's just like, and nobody cared. That's I think, what it feels like. I think, though, you're bringing up a, a deeper point that I think, you know, the word hellscape gets thrown around a lot in, like, mm -hmm. social media and memes. I think you shared a video, and I've seen many that are like, yeah, you you post on one hand that this horrific thing is happening across the world that you have learned about and care about because you have a heart and you're a human. And then, oh, well, it's time to go to work, and we have a Halloween party today, so I'm going to dress up like Waldo. Or like for me, it's like, oh, the NBA's back. It's like, that's that's like my favorite thing. So like, okay, well, I yeah, I care about that. It's like, oh, well, rent is due or mortgage is due. And 
I got to go to work and I'm afraid for my job. So I don't want to be too vocal, but I also early on when I was, you know, really struggling with what, what the right thing to do was <laughs> Ashley sent me this video and it was like a comedian and he was like, I'm really just trying to do the right thing. He's like, you know, I, I never want to miss a cause. He's like, Ukraine, it seems so right. He's like, he's like, well, so at first I was like, well, this seems like really great Israel. But then I learned, it's like, well, that's not great. And then it's like, well, this, he's like, what? Well, I don't want to miss a cause. He's like, I was right there for BLM. I was right there for Ukraine. Like, what do I do? And he's like, and a, and a friend booked a Geico commercial off of a video that he did for the Ukraine. So I've got to be there for this. And it's like a really silly parody of like what it really is like to try to be a, a, a laptop advocate activist you know we go to our protests we go to our we we make our podcasts you know trying to educate our, our people because we feel like that's what we're supposed to do and then the never-ending news cycle keeps going and it's national diabetes awareness month and we're you know posting our little series you know it's just uh, and at the same time like you said you can't stop living you can't stop you, you know there are people that depend on you uh, you have you know real responsibilities you know you talked about you know, that was the hardest part of the grief about my dad dying. It's like the, the next day I had clients that needed stuff. They needed things for their restaurant menu, you know, and that wasn't their fault that they needed it. They weren't trying to do that intentionally. That's just the reality of this, you know, back to the word hellscape that we live in where there isn't time to grieve. There isn't time to make real actionable change because 90% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck and don't have savings and don't, you know, are, you know, don't have access to the, the healthcare that they need or walking around with diabetes that they don't know that they have. And I think that's, you know, sobering. I think one of the best quotes I've ever heard, and it's very Marvel, but it's like, what is, what is love but grief everlasting? Mm -hmm. And something yeah, I think about a lot. What is, what is grief but love enduring, right? Something that I think about a lot, especially when I think about my Middle Eastern group, is I think about Dr. Kadira all the time. And I know that sounds crazy. And for those of you who don't remember, Dr. Kadira was someone who was in my positive on glucose group who passed away from hypo and awareness and hypoglycemia in her sleep and left behind her son and her husband. And I think about the people who have called me from that group and who have said that it's been an honor to know me. And it's just like, first of all, nobody's honored to know me. I'm just a human being who's on this planet trying to exist. But it is such a testament of the love that I have for the people that are in Gaza who I know personally that I'm this enraged and I'm this angry and I'm this moved to do something. It Something people don't talk about that when you start a coalition, you know, I've been channeling a lot of my inner Rob Howe, which is like, what does this work even look like? And just showing up for those meetings and listening to people and trying to figure out what the next steps are. Because what you guys don't know is that or what you might know is that there's no humanitarian aid being entered into Gaza. So it really feels like I'm just pushing out a petition, but now I'm getting ready to collect supplies because once humanitarian aid does become available, I don't have to get ready if I stay ready. And if we stay ready as a group, we can just ship things. So there are things to do even when you feel the most helpless and the most hopeless. And I would just say to anybody who's also living in the duality of grief for the people of Palestine and Gaza while having to show up at work and having to do things that they don't necessarily want to do because they feel guilty being happy is to really hug yourself and give yourself grace and remember that you're a really good person because if you weren't a good person, you wouldn't care. But that's how I think we land the plane.
just was thinking the same thing. I think we did it. Yeah. All right. Well, this is a very intense episode. Thank you for your passion. And when we get off recording, I'll make sure to check on you. But this episode is produced by Earth Trade Musa. It's edited and, and published by Ashley Bright and our friends DJ and Corey from Excel Creative create the social content. Uh, we'll see you next month on the Rob and Eritrea show.